You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Welcome, everyone, uh, to this event at the New York Encounter. Uh, whether you're here at the Metropolitan Pavilion or online, uh, welcome. Um, <clears throat> my name is Anujit Sareen. I'm a portfolio manager at an investment firm in Philadelphia called Brandywine Global, and I have the privilege of moderating uh, this discussion. Uh, before I introduce the topic, let me thank uh, Illumia for helping to organize this event. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, economic inequality. You see the title of the event, this is one of the challenges of capitalism, it's distributional consequences. Uh, I'm going to start by just giving you just a really quick story in my own life that connects to this. Uh, uh, I was born in India in 1972, but my parents moved here to the United States as legal immigrants in 1977 when I was five years old. My dad had a bachelor's degree in biochemistry, my mom had a bachelor's degree, my dad had a pretty good job at a manufacturing company uh, in India. But they left all that, and they came here for me and my younger sister. Uh, America is the land of opportunity. Uh, they thought uh, we, we would have a better education here, and a better life than they could possibly offer us uh, back in India. Uh, the first year we hear, my dad pushes a hot dog cart right here in Manhattan to make ends meet. He'd eventually save up enough money to start a, a grocery store over in Coney Island in Brooklyn, uh, and that grocery store would support our family for the next 15 years. We were a lower middle income family, uh, living in Brooklyn. You know, I went to the public schools, uh, elementary school, the public middle school, uh, and eventually was able to get a scholarship to uh, high school and college uh, and have a successful career in, in finance. This is why my parents came. This is why millions of immigrants come to the United States. It's the land of opportunity. Uh, and it's, of course, it's not just for immigrants, right? It's for, for all Americans, all of, all of people here. This is what we want to offer uh, in, in, in this country. And, and, and one of the questions that brings us to this conversation is, is that as true as it once was? Uh, is this the land of opportunity? Do we offer this to all uh, as we have in the past, or is it really more now available to a, a smaller and smaller group? Uh, the question isn't just about inequality of opportunity, it's about equality of income, income inequality, about wealth inequities. Um, we'll get into some of those issues, and, and part of the reason we're having this discussion uh, here is that it's not just an, an issue for America. This is an issue that uh, a number of countries are facing around the world. We had just a couple of elections this past year in Peru and Chile uh, where this was the central topic that decided the election. Uh, China is confronting this in its own way as well. One last thing I'll say before I introduce our, our speakers uh, is that uh, in light of the theme of the New York Encounter, the urge for truth, I would really invite you to come to this with an open mind. Um, income inequality is a subject that, that becomes partisan very, very quickly. I mean, I talk to folks who lean to the left politically and they have an idea of what it means, why it's, why it's the case and what to do about it. I talk to folks who lean to the political right and they've got their own narrative about this and what to do about it. Uh, and and, and I, think, I think this conversation will be more fruitful for everyone, I think, uh, if we're open to where, where the dialogue leads, and, and not least because I think fundamentally this is a question for each, each of us individually before it's a policy societal question. How do we ourselves put ourselves in front of uh, the questions about uh, economics and justice? Okay, having said that, let me introduce our speakers. Uh, we have two speakers uh, joining us virtually. The first is uh, Professor Jean-Paul Fitoussi. Uh, uh, professor Fittussi is the Professor Emeritus at the Institut d'Etudes Politiques de Paris and Professor at the Louis University in Guido Carli in Rome. He's also a member of the Center for Capitalism and Society at Columbia University. Since 2013, he is the co-chairman of the high-level expert group at the OECD on the measurement of economic performances and social progress. Welcome, Professor. Uh, I should note, by the way, uh, Professor Fittussi is joining us from, uh, uh, from Paris, where it is 10 o'clock at night at this hour, so we really appreciate him taking the time to join us. That's okay. Uh, we're also joined by um, uh, Professor Branko Milanovic, 
He's a senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. He served as a lead economist in the World Bank's research department for almost 20 years. He's the author of numerous books on income inequality, and the last one being Capitalism Alone. And then finally, last but not least, I have with me on stage here Samuele Rosa. Uh, Samuele works as a senior economist at the IMF in the development countries area. He's carried out his career entirely in international organizations. He worked at the European Commission and the European Monetary Institute, involved in the preparatory work related to the establishment of the European single currency, then moving to the ECB until the launch of the Euro. Welcome, all of you. So, uh, Professor Milanovic, Branko, let's start with you. Um, uh, when, you, when you hear the term income inequality, it bespeaks a certain measure. What is unequal when it comes to income? Can you, given your I mean, extensive research, set the table for us? How unequal are we versus history, globally? How do you think about this? Well, first, thank you very much for inviting me. Obviously, it is a pleasure to be here. I, of course, regret that I am actually unable to be there uh, physically, but hopefully some other time that would be more easier to do. So let me uh, actually start with the example that you very interestingly gave, your own story, which of course was the story of many immigrants and their families in the United States. There was a very strong perception and probably reality that the U.S. was a land of opportunity and that social mobility was high. But what we know in terms of facts also confirms that, for example, in the most recent work, which was only published a couple of years ago, by Peter Lindert and Jeff Williamson. Historically, they showed that the United States, we are talking about the US before the independence and then in those days, was actually much more equal than European countries. And particularly, there was no hugely wealthy people at the very top, where you had a very high inequality and high wealth at the top. So the US historically had periods where it was equal, so uh, relatively equal. So, you know, we should not forget that. However, we know nowadays that the U.S. is more unequal in terms of income inequality and in terms of wealth inequality than the majority of OECD countries. So in other words, compared to its own you know, sort of peers in terms of income, level of income, U.S. inequality is relatively high. Actually, it is the highest in OECD countries unless you include, I mean, if you exclude countries like Chile and Turkey. Uh, and on the other hand, we also know empirically that the social mobility in the U.S. has declined. So this is how I would put it. You know, I can give numbers, you know, in, in the terms of the Gini coefficient, which is very often used. But, you know, I think it's sufficient just to say that the U.S. currently has a significantly higher inequality than the countries in, uh, in Europe. And I think that's the, the major story. And I think the second point is that that high level of inequality is correlated with low social, relatively low social mobility. Thank you. Uh, maybe Samuela, you could add to this. Uh, yeah, first of all, I wanted to, uh, to make a quick comments. Uh, I'm very happy that uh, Branco is with us. What Branco did was really to, so we, we knew inequality was an issue in uh, advanced economies and US in a way in that sense leads, but it's not the only one. But uh, it was not until uh, Branco came with, uh, you know, a huge work to put this, uh, uh, in a way, narrative, this anecdotal evidence into hard data that the discussion really flourished in our, in our profession. And, uh, and because there is uh, evidence, there is a reality that we can look, then kind of, you know, in a way the polarization become, became less uh, marked because there is something we can start. So this is, in a way, uh, to, to, to relate to the title of this encounter and also of uh, the New York encounter. So just, just some data. I'd like instead to put some data out there. Now focusing on, on, uh, on, um, on, the, on the US. So, uh, I mean, um, on income inequality, if you, if you look at the, you know, at the uh, growth in real income of the famous 1% uh, of the US over the last two decades or so, uh, the growth was like about uh, 350 percent. It tripled to up to you know four, three to four times more. And this was 
people already with a very high income. Then look at the Standard & Poor's, so the, in a way, market capitalization story. And you are even higher. It's about five uh, to six. But then when you look at the CAO, so the one-tenth of one percent, or even, uh, I'd say, one-twentieth, uh, so the Fortune 500 uh, guys, uh, the increase over the last, uh, say, two decades of their income was 1,000%. So it increased by 10 times. And now it's, it's somehow hard to just uh, assume that it's all driven by increasing productivity. And there there's a big, uh, you know, debate in my profession. One, one test for that is that uh, the increase in income also occurred during the two big financial crises, including and actually especially in the financial sector. So it's hard to say that uh, productivity increased when, uh, you know, financial institution were part of a kind of almost destruction of wealth because of the crisis. So there, you know, there, there's something else that must be also driving this increase uh, in, uh, in, in real wages. And uh, you know, if it's not productivity, there are other culprits, there are other uh, hypotheses in economics that we can look at. Um, I want to say also something about uh, other, other measures of inequality, of course, you mentioned that very quickly, you know, we look at inequality of uh, health and education, um, so input and outcomes, we look at the perception of inequality which seems to be growing in recent uh, years, there is more data out there, there is more buzz, and so people care much more than before, but uh, I wanted to speak about uh, wealth inequality, and kind of here is the news, if inequality, or the, the fact, in, if inequality on income is actually very high and growing, Inequality of wealth is a multiple of that. And so I, I wanted to kind of, let's say we run an experiment here to make it a bit more visual. Let's say we, we bring back the, the, the time of 2010, and you send me to look for the most wealthy people in the world in a way that you want me to have their wealth together matching the wealth of the bottom 50%, 3.5 billions of people. Okay, and you ask me, we need to prepare a room here. How big has to be this room? How many people I need to match the wealth of half a billion, uh, sorry, of 3.5 billion of the lower distribution of the world in 2010? And this was about 400 people, 388. This is Oxfam uh, uh, studies. And now you ask yourself, well, this is quite staggering. The idea that less than 400 people owns what 3.5 billion people owns. Of course, it also tells you that this. 3.5 billion people owns nothing, almost, right? Then you ask yourself, okay, but how is, going to the question, kind of uh, market economy, capitalistic market economy, what is the trend of this uh, quite staggering inequality? And I don't want to look at this when we had COVID. You know, during these three years of COVID, a lot of things have happened, we can come back to that. Let's stop just one year before. You know, I run the same exercise. I got under award to, to, to pick up uh, the top wealthier people to match 3.5 billion of people. And remember that 10 years ago it was uh, 2010 about uh, 400, 388 people. And I come here to this place and it's enough for me to have 42 people. So 42 people would match the wealth of you know, 3.5 billion people. This is you know, by any means a staggering data. I mean, again, data shows more the reality that you know, uh, touches you. And then, you, you, you say to yourself, okay, how this, how this has evolved? You look at 2016, and you, you look at the increase in the value of the wealth, you know, shares, land, lands, real estate, whatever. You know, these are very complex calculations, uh, but uh, the increase in wealth in this one year, just to have a sense, 82% uh, of that went to the top 1%. You know, so it's, it is really staggering. And US is not an exception, actually, in a way, leads. Uh, you know, you have about uh, two families uh, owning, one of which is busy with um, important re uh, uh, retail trade distribution, owning the wealth of uh, one-third of the American people, and you have about uh, one-third of American people, 30% owning no asset at all. So it's, the numbers are really staggering on wealth, you know? And what that means is that issue, you know, if you think about mobility like, you know, climbing stairs, of course, if you, if you have to jump three meters to climb one steps, obviously, it's impossible not to understand that inequality at some point also affects mobility. Okay, and, and uh, 
And we see that in the data, as, as, Branco, as Branco suggested. And uh, that affects also kind of, in a way, the social, the social cohesion. So what I want to say is that, uh, you know, inequality of wealth is, is big, but there are other things happening meanwhile. As this inequality kind of uh, fed and expanded, we see other stuff that, uh, in a way, forms the fabric of our society and social cohesion. I want to talk about two things. First of all, uh, trust. Okay, Gallup survey, this is the best data I think I can find is comparable. Again, over the last two decades or so, you ask people in this country now, do you trust institutions? And when I say institutions, I say your local parish, your grassroots community, probably your family, of course the federal government. Do you trust in the possibility that a collective action can be put together to deal with problems that affects us all? And the number of people saying somewhat yes or really yes went to 41 to 31%, which is already very low to me. But then you ask another question, which is uh, in, in uh, understanding the complex work, world in which we live and how to address the problem that uh, it poses, unemployment, uh, security, future of your kids, health, you name it, key important issue. How much do you trust that some indication, some suggestion on how to see those things and how to solve those things can come from discussing with others, with engaging with others? And this is really amazing to me. I mean, we went from close to 80% to barely 50%, which means, you know, 50%, so half of the people here in this, in this room would say, you know, in addressing I'm just joking, of course. In addressing challenging issue, I don't need to talk with others. Which means, I'd rather talk with people who already agree with what I say, which also understands, makes you understand why the social media takes a big, 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 big part of that. So, are we set for some thinking about where capitalism is leading? Look at inequality, look at mobility, look at trust? I think yes. There is, uh, there is something to be said, and I need to say right away up front, whatever I'm saying here does not engage my, the board of IMF of my management. So I take it as an it's open discussion. Uh, so my answer is yes, uh, and I want to also focus, la 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 last uh, comment is uh, there are obviously other assets, other value in the balance sheet of a society, which is not just income and wealth. And we need to also understand the, the place that they, they, they take, social capital and the relationship. I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Sanjay. Thanks, Samuele. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. I want to move on to Professor Fittusi, but Branko, one last quick question. Give us a sense of time. When was the last time the U.S. was this unequal in history? Well, uh, it depends really what measures you use, but you know, according to some measures, if you don't look, if you don't look at the amount of redistribution which happened, if you simply look at what is called market incomes, then the U.S. today is unequal, as unequal as it was in the beginning of the 20th century. So basically, you have to go back a whole century. If you do look, if you include also redistribution, which is now much higher because obviously you have direct taxations, which is direct taxes which are greater than in the past and you have social transfers, then uh, probably, you know, you would probably have to go back to the 19, uh, well, it's hard to say, maybe 1930s, right. you know, so it is, uh, it has been a long time that actually, you know, U.S. has had a period where, where inequality went down very substantially until 1980s and then crept up until today. Great, thank you. Uh, so, uh, Jean-Paul. Maybe we could uh, switch to you. And, and you know, when, when, when I hear the term income inequality, right, income, I think, speaks to 
economics, to work, uh, capitalism. Uh, inequality speaks to uh, democracy and justice. How, how, do you, how do you think about these two worlds? How do they coincide? Well, I, <clears throat> let me tell you uh, first what uh, I wanted to understand better inequality. We have done a lot of study on inequality. Uh, we have, uh, uh, with uh, Joe Stiglitz and Anna Martin said, developed uh, a full set of measures, and uh, recently another full set of measures. We have used the Bronco measures. We have um, had, uh, uh, we have m even uh, uh, calculated uh, uh, inequality of opportunity. Um, and we uh, did not understand why such a situation did not conduct to a catastrophe, because uh, the increase of inequality, which is, as you said, almost universal, but um, the leading country being the United States, uh, <clears throat> is uh, uh, present everywhere uh, under a different form. For example, in Europe. In Europe, it's, it's the, the only region which uh, has known for more than 30 years mass unemployment. And mass unemployment signifies inequality. Even if it does not lead directly to the uh, inequality of income, uh, because there are the social security system, it leads to inequality in the quality of life. It means inequality in well-being. It means uh, inequality before the death, before the divorce, before uh, uh, suicide, and so on and so forth. So you have a lot of uh, uh, way uh, um, uh, for looking at increasing inequality, and also, um, uh, for example, economic insecurity. Economic insecurity is uh, changing the, the life in our countries because it is increasing at the same time because of inequality and because of a change of powers, of a balance of powers, inequality leads to. So uh, the only way to try to understand is to consider the uh, a comprehensive system in which we are living. And to make it short, we are living in the system that I call market democracy. What is market democracy? It's a system which, which is combining two principles of organization which are contradictory, totally opposed. The principle of uh, democracy, one person, one vote, and the principle of the market, one dollar, one vote. So if uh, you have not a political regime which try to make a trade-off between these two, which, are, which has to look for compromise all the time. It's why democracy is a debate on the norms of justice, because it has to look all the time for compromise between these two uh, principles which are uh, entering in conflict one with, with the other. There was a, uh, an American judge of a, a constitutional uh, court who said, you can have democracy or you can have the money concentrated in few hands, but you can't have both. And what uh, <clears throat> Samuel said is exactly that. We have uh, half of the uh, income of the planet concentrated on 42 
I was speaking Italian, on 42 people. Uh, that means it's unacceptable. We have uh, also, uh, as a twist on democracy, the fact that uh, the universal suffrage does not exist anymore. When you have uh, the uh, uh, richer people who uh, are proprietor of all the newspaper, the TV channel, uh, the uh, 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 research center, uh, the uh, funding of uh, the uh, um, uh, of research, they have uh, an influence, which means that they have 1,000 at least more uh, votes than uh, any of, any of us. I, I said 1,000, but I don't know. It should be much more. I mean, with a journal, I can influence a lot of people. It's why the uh, election campaign are grounded on, on uh, the, the medias. And you have also um, something which is uh, uh, completely uh, different, uh, which is happening completely different of what we have uh, lived until the end of the uh, 70s, which is the inversion of the hierarchy between the political regime and the economic regime. Um, now it's the economic regime, which according to the theory, is leading uh, the system. And it is leading the system because of a doctrinal, which is false, but I mean, of a doctrinal evolution, which uh, has uh, said that um, the system arrives spontaneously at the best of all possible situations. Uh, I mean, the market, the perfect market system, what uh, uh, capitalism is considered to be, but it's not true. And the power capitalism is much less employed today, but it was some time ago, at the time of a, a Cold War, was a, a capitalism against communism. But now there are just market democracy and we, we have a, the market system. But the market system can work only if uh, no actor has a power on the other, on another actor, which is the assumption of uh, atomicity. And uh, uh, if uh, that's not true, that means we are not in a perfect uh, uh, market. We are in a system which is uh, uh, leading to market failure. And that can be, should be combated by the state. But if the state voluntarily prevented himself to act, this correction will never uh, appear. So I, 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 I was wondering why uh, am I too long? No, 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 no. I, no, no, Professor, you're, there's, there's so much richness to what you're talking about. I think this question so I'm wondering, that... that, uh, that uh, I'm wondering about uh, uh, one thing. Why is it like that? What did happen what, uh, that uh, uh, made us to choose the homo economicus rather than the social being? And it was just an inversion of the time arrow. We have worked as if the neoclassical theory was posterior to the Keynesian theory. And we have done as if the neoclassical theory was the modern theory and the Keynesian theory was the ancient theory. 
I'm not saying that because I'm a Canadian, but because of a fairly different way of uh, these two theory uh, <coughs> uh, to consider the global system. In the uh, neoclassical theory, you have homo economicus, people who, who are not, not caring about others, they are just looking for the self-interest, and, uh, uh, and so the, uh, uh, everything which happened is due to their merit. That means that uh, inequality is totally justified. Inequality is a good thing. There are some economists who have uh, written, the president of the Economic Association has written uh, a, a paper called In Defense of Inequality, because he thought that inequality is a way of giving incentives. And the Keynesian theory, on the contrary, uh, understand people as are living in a, in a world populated by a situation. For example, uh, Keynes was saying that uh, wages are paid in money, and so the best system is to have wage rigidity, monetary wage rigidity, to avoid the uh, <coughs> total chaos on the contract that people are, are signing, long-term contract, short-term contract, and so on. So um, we are we have forget that. We forgot that we are, uh, 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 how can I say, we are directed by law, directed by an economic system, and that never existed. Uh, uh, an economic system without a political system. Once I asked Aro, Kenneth Aro, to tell me what was, <clears throat> according to him, the political system, the most uh, performing for growth. And he said, I just want to interrupt for a second. Finish your thought, but I, I think I'd like to get on to some more other questions. That there's a lot of richness to what you're talking about, but I, I want to make sure we, we were able to get through some, some more content. But please, finish, finish okay. your thought. No, I want to say, uh, what is the political system? Uh, <clears throat> leading to the uh, highest growth possible. And his answer was to tell me, you know the question. No political system. And uh, in the, uh, Adam Smith's representation, you had the invisible hand, this visible hand was reemplacing the political system because it was harmonizing the interest of the people without uh, that, um, that they are in the society, actually. So uh, uh, that means that we are, we have simplified in such a way the uh, uh, political and economic system, our comprehensive system, that we are no more in contact with uh, any kind of reality. And so inequality is something monstrous, it's something obscene. It's still becoming, becoming something obscene because uh, how can a man say, uh, my value is 5,000 times your value to another? Okay, I finish here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Um, let me... Let me Let's step back for a moment here, because uh, uh, the data is the data, right? Bronco, you talked about it. Samuela, you talked about it. I think, I think this natural tension from, from uh, you know, that, that ordering of that hierarchy, uh, Jean-Paul, that you just talked about, I think that's 
that's very clear as well. The, the thing that to me that's just so striking, though, is even though inequality is as bad as it's been for nearly a century, it's not the driving force of our political discourse. We remain a very divided country. You go back 100 years ago when inequality was this bad, and you're talking the rise of trade unions, the robber barons, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Gatsby, the Great Depression, a massive political swing to address this injustice. That's not as apparent in our political dialogue. I'm not saying there aren't people who are advocating it. It's just not, we're split. Why, why do you think that's the case if the inequality is so large? Anyone of you? Who will answer? Because I have an answer for <laughs> Please, jump off, go. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it's not true that inequality has not had uh, an important effect on the evolution of our system. First, you have the rise of extremist party everywhere. And after all, you had the Trump in the US, no? And uh, the second, you have uh, the rise in abstention, um, meaning that. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, half uh, of the people uh, are voting out the political regime. You have uh, violence. And you have a rise in violence, not only in uh, the schools, and the political debates are becoming more and more violent everywhere, and uh, especially in the United States. And you have violence between people. And the United States is, is a clear case, but it is also true in France, for example. It's also true in Europe. And the reasoning is, is, is simple to understand. A man can say, if my life is valued zero, why should I value your life much more. So um, your life, uh, violence, will be the consequence of, of this kind of reasoning. There will be no consideration for the others, because we are not living in a society, but in the categories of uh, in a, an heterogeneity of uh, small groups who are not making society. And, and so violence is uh, becoming more and more of a problem. I think that's a very interesting observation. Rise of extremism, rise of violence. I don't know, Branko, somewhere that you want to add to this question. Well, I, I will be, if, if if I can, you know, I would be rather brief on that. I actually agree with what, with everything that uh, that uh, Jean-Paul very sort of uh, effectively the points that he made. In particular, I would like to to sort of underline the fact that if you define democracy as the approximately equal power to influence public outcomes. Approximately equal, because it would never be obviously equal. Individuals are different. Some people are more interested or they have greater knowledge and others are less and so on. That, in, that equality is so far from being real, partly or mostly because rich people are really controlling nowadays, as, as Jean-Paul mentioned, actually even the media. So essentially, you cannot express yourself. You have an, an, an inbuilt difference in power to start with. So that's one of the reasons of why wealth inequality, which you spoke before and Samuel as well, is so important because such a huge level of wealth inequality necessarily translates in huge inequality in political power. Uh, the second element which I think is important to realize why we are maybe less uh, sort of politically active on the issues of inequality compared to 100 years ago is that uh, ideologically 
the, I mean, socialist ideologies have declined in importance. There are many reasons for that, not only because of the Soviet Union, but also because of the trade unions, which used in the past to be much more important than they are today. So I think these two, uh, two reasons, one is the ideological, the second one is huge accumulation of you know, wealth in the hands of very few people and their political power. And the third point also is the indifference. You know, the very fact uh, that we had in the U.S., you know, 50% of the people who actually have the right to vote normally do not vote. And in the last election, that was so, you had really to live under the rock not to realize that there was election. And there were still 40% of people who did not bother to vote. So these are, I think, three elements. So I said ideology, accumulation of wealth, and indifference, which is maybe due to the very fact that people know that their sort of effective power is much less than what it should be or what at least it is claimed to be. So I think these would be the reasons, in my opinion, why we have much less of a political inequality, has much less of a political salience compared to 100 years ago. Yes. Can I say one word about uh, what he said? One word, which is that uh, you are perfectly right. <clears throat> but uh, the, the reason of that is that the, the political system did not solve the problem of this population. So looking at uh, the fact that uh, never the political system is uh, uh, resolving the hardest question to which they are confronted, like precariousness, like uh, poverty, like unemployment. Somebody said, at what serve to vote? What is the utility to vote? I and think. so they have done. Yeah, yeah, I agree I, with that. Yeah. I, I want to say something here on a, on a, on a, on a positive side, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, Jean-Paul put on on the table the issue is the starting point of what is the human being about is he a social being uh, defined by meaningful relationship towards you know meaning uh, the purpose of improving the social life or is it just a self-centered uh, profit maximizer a temporal so homo economicus versus uh, versus uh, you know a social being as Aristotle would say, for those who study those things. Um, and and Jean-Paul, in my view, is, is saying, at least to me, what I understand is that it's only through the force of a kind of ideology that we are led to disregard how important is our being together as a social being would be the most natural part of it. it was, you know, if we were to be thorough about understanding the link between that economy, certain things would be easier to understand. And I want to make a, an example here. You know, there have been a number of uh, Nobel Prizes in the last 10, 20 years that actually unraveled, un un sort of uh, um, challenged this idea of the home economicus. That in our decision about how to consume and how to invest, if we are given the chance to do so, we rather care and a lot about the implication of our consumption investment decision on others, on workers, on the environment. And, uh, you know, if you give people, you know, the possibility, say, spend a certain amount of your consumption or investment budget in this or that, and in this debt, I give you the opportunity to be sure that you are uh, taking more into account the well-being of others, of the worker of the company, of the environment, People would rather choose the second, and in particular, young people. Sorry? In particular, young people. Um, so, on one hand, there is a disaffection for democracy, active participation, not the idea of democracy. On the other hand, you know, there is a big demand out there for, to participate more, even in the consumption investment life, to build a better world, I would say, in a... Um, you know, that shows two things. First of all, that whatever we're told, uh, even if the homo economicus might be a technical trick, it's fundamentally a lie, and people, when awake, when, uh, you know, kind of considerate about themselves, show this nature of social being. But secondly, that politics nowadays, and it's certainly not just the case in the U.S., 
is not able to intercept and frame that demand. Right? And so people say, well, I don't trust this institution. They really mean the way institution helps to take into account my, you know, my desire for a socially uh, you know, engaged life doesn't, doesn't respond to me. So, but I think that you know, there is a huge market out there for, 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 for a more engaged uh, consumption and investment life of the, of the human being. Second thing is that not everything is financial assets or economic values. So we also have to understand that uh, there is other asset in the balance sheet of society, therefore we need democracy to put those dimensions to the fore. Um, we can't, uh, this was what we discussed last year with the Raguram, uh, we, 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 we can't have uh, the market extend the grips on all the society or the state for that matter, there's something else. You know, as, as a social being, civil society, you would call it, you know, and a balance between the three is key to have a, an engaged and, 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 and the meaningful life. I'll stop there. Of course, this is a big issue, big yeah, theme, but I wanted to, you know, <laughs> I want also to, co to connect this discussion to the discussion we had last year because there is a way that I think there is a line that holds this in a, in a, in a neat way. Um, Branko, maybe you, you could help us think about this more historically. You, you, you know, you've looked at this data, I think, going back quite a ways through history. And one of the, one of the you know, narratives that, that, I, that I often hear, right, is that there's a trade-off. If you decide to make a society more just on this basis, you, you, you tax the wealthy and you give to the poor in whatever form you do that, that that comes at the expense of growth. That uh, you somehow, you're disincentivizing those who take risks and build businesses uh, and, and therefore, growth is diminished, even though your society is more equal. And it is a very common critique I hear of Europe versus U.S., for yeah. example. Is that trade-off, is that necessary? Is that, is that, a, is that a false uh, trade-off, or is that, is that true, given your assessment of history? Well, Anuj, it is, of course, the, one of the biggest questions, maybe in economics, that you're asking. Uh, because uh, obviously there are differences of opinion and uh, it is a fundamental issue. Let me say very sort of briefly what my sort of perception or my view on this issue is. I do think that of course many people argue as you actually said, they would actually say if you uh, redistribute more, the incentives would be less, economic growth would be less. Now, empirically, that's kind of hard to, to show, and the empirical results are at least ambivalent, and some of them actually argue that the opposite is true, that actually with lower inequality, by enabling more people to actually meaningfully participate and make money and become prosperous, you're actually increasing the uh, rate of growth if you have lower inequality. But even if you do not 100% ascribe to this view, I think there is also the issue of short run versus medium run or long run. So even if it's true that you would have some losses in the short run, they are more than offset and balanced by the gains that you get over the medium run from the ability of people to actually acquire better, better education, to be healthier. You know, people who are not healthy, they cannot work. So this is a very important issue, not only obviously in poor countries, but even in rich countries. So I think even if, they, if, if one were to accept that there is some truth to that short-term trade-off, there is, I think, very little truth in a medium-term and long-term. And then on top of that, you can actually introduce other elements that we were already discussing, that we were uh, uh, like uh, uh, equal opportunity, like a, a social mobility, and political participation. So if you take them as a whole package, it doesn't seem to me at all uh, sort of likely that the original sort of point of view that there is a trade-off can be maintained. I actually think on the contrary, that e equality and growth are mutually reinforced. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support.
Um, yeah. Let's let's go let's go back to something you just mentioned, and I think all three of you have mentioned this, uh, uh, which is the, the issue of social mobility and opportunity. Um, uh, one of the things that I hear when I discuss this topic with others in the U.S. is that maybe it's the case, right? We have to distinguish process from outcome. That that we are willing as a society to tolerate a certain amount of inequality if we genuinely believe there is an equality of opportunity. Right. Uh, how do you think about this subject, social mobility, opportunity? Is it, uh, how are they related to income inequality, and do you think that has also diminished today versus the past? Can I just say empirically that we do know now that actually higher inequality is correlated with lower social mobility. So that's something that we know empirically, which we didn't know 50 years or 20 years ago. And I think that reinforces the argument that we all have, I think, made, is that a reduction of inequality is not only good for the reduction of inequality per se, but actually has many other positive effects, including a higher social mobility and basically allowing poor people or people from lower or middle class or whatever to actually get to very to positions where they would be much better off, and by becoming better off, they're also making the society better off. John Paul? Yeah, I think uh, the question is complex. We know much more uh, today than we knew uh, before. We have seen an increase in uh, both kinds of inequality, inequality of opportunity and inequality um, concrete inequality. We have seen also a decrease in social mobility everywhere. And, uh, uh, and this decrease has many explanations, well, one of which being uh, uh, the fear of, being, uh, uh, of losing all your social capital when you have no power, uh, bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis, uh, your uh, uh, employer. Uh, that means that you you are more, more, much more precarious and it's better to stay in your community than to, to, to go elsewhere. But that's not a very important thing I, I, I wanted to say. It's about um, this point linked to your former question. The problem is that uh, the more and more I think to economics, and uh, I think it's a conte pour enfants. I don't know who you say that. It's a um, fairy, uh, fairy tale. Fairy tale. Fairy tale. Fairy tale. You know why uh, uh, there are no, there exists no disequilibrium in economy? because people are optimizing intertemporal uh, trade-off between work and leisure. And that has uh, le uh, led to a lot of uh, Nobel Prize. We have believed this uh, story of rational expectation, of knowing the future, of uh, not having disequilibrium. Uh, uh, what you are seeing is not unemployment, is measured unemployment. Uh, it's not involuntary unemployment, it's chosen unemployment. So uh, <laughs> the problem in uh, such a situation, uh, according to some economists, and I am really uh, angry against uh, some of these economists, is that they are uh, ready to give up democracy, to have uh, less redistribution and more inequality. In a nutshell, I made the reasoning of uh, Barrow, uh, Robert Barrow, who is uh, saying that, assuming that there is a scale of, in, of um, political regime from zero to one, zero is total totalitarianism, and one is total democracy. And he said, what is the regime the most favorable to growth is 
o análise. <risos> análise. Which corresponde, saying it, uh, to the Chile of Pinochet. But what he said in, in, in the 90s, no, it's not something which is, which you can accept easily. But why it is like that? Because the, uh, um, if you, there are too much equality, the median voter will uh, uh, succeed in his uh, demand for redistribution of income. So that means that taxation, taxation will increase, and so incentive to invest and to for capital for capitalists will decrease. So when uh, you consider that inequality should increase, whether such, uh, um, uh, real or inequality of opportunity. But social mobility should decrease because you avoid uh, this way to spend too much uh, by the state. So you avoid to increase the uh, interest uh, uh, rate of interest. I remember of a debate I had with uh, uh, Prescott. He, he did a model for the United States and a, and a model for France, which differs only by the rate of uh, uh, interest, uh, the rate of taxation. And he said there is no wonder that France has a higher uh, rate of unemployment because the rate of taxation is high. So I told him that, look, if uh, uh, you have uh, two models differing by one variable, the only <laughs> explaining variable can't be just this one variable. Yeah. So there is uh, no other thing. What I want to do to say, not um, uh, clearly, uh, maybe, is that we are too much naive to accept the story which are told to us and that we begin also uh, naive in accepting the uh, disequilibrium, the social disequilibrium, which are multiplying in a society. But there is one thing which is clear, is that in the US, it is the only country which is uh, grounding inequality on philosophical uh, study, on philosophical work. I mean, uh, what was this um, um, school of philosophy uh, which were libertarian? The libertarian are just justifying inequality. In the other country, inequality is justified by uh, economic performance, by incentive, but not by uh, the uh, freedom of people. Thank you, Jean-Paul. We, we actually are unfortunately coming to the end of this event. Uh, there's a lot here. I wish we had a lot more time to dive into it. I mean, you talked a lot about trust, Samuele, you know, the, the erosion of trust itself and in the institutions leading to a, maybe a lack of participation in, in, in the electoral system, which might, which might otherwise be a way to remedy some of these uh, uh, in, in, inequities. Um, um, I, I really appreciate you, uh, all of you in, in, in your thoughts, uh, Branco and Samuele, giving us a sense of kind of the magnitudes that are uh, in front of us today. I think these are serious issues. I think there's, they're bubbling up in different ways, to, to Jean-Paul's point. It's not showing up in the, in the, on, the, on election day quite the way it did 100 years ago, but I think the point about a disenfranchisement, a, a violence that's emerging um, in, in different parts of society, I think is worth noting. Uh, and this, and for me personally, the, the erosion of social mobility 
uh, is very insidious. Um, uh, the story I told you at the beginning of this, uh, for me and my, personally and for my family, is we know objectively in the data is less likely today. Uh, it has gotten harder. If you're born in a certain socioeconomic group today, you're less likely to move out of that socioeconomic group. Um, those are sobering uh, uh, you know, data to just for us to consider, I think, as a society. I mentioned China earlier. You know, China is a country that um, is dealing with inequality as well. Uh, and their response to it uh, is going to sound very draconian in some sense. They, they, what they've done recently, just in the last six months, is they've banned all private tutoring companies because they've given undue advantage, they argue, to those who are rich. Now, that's not a, a, a solution that we would pursue here in the United States, but, but, but it, is, it, is just, it just highlights that, that wealth inequality, income inequality, begets income inequality. Right? You, there are advantages that, 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 that one accrues as, as, as one becomes more wealthy that can that's, that's self-fulfill. Uh, 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 anyways, we've got to stop there. Uh, and before we thank our speakers, I do, I do need to make a couple of quick announcements. One, I do want to thank uh, Illumia again for sponsoring this event. Um, and the other announcement, and, and, and the irony won't escape you, that given the topic of this discussion is that uh, I am uh, I've been asked to invite you to give generously at the donation table uh, outside the room here or uh, online at uh, newyorkencounter.org slash donate. Uh, please join me in thanking all three of our speakers. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.